Chapter 14 by Mandela's Side We won peace standing on our feet, not kneeling on our knees. Nelson Mandela, 1990 At the end of the 1980s, popular unrest swept the country. In reaction, the besieged National Party desperately used state coercion to contain a growing crescendo of protest. Many of its leaders now recognized that a negotiated settlement, on its own terms, was the only way to avert disaster. Indeed, the necessity of reform had been openly recognized by P.W. Boerter as long ago as 1985 in his widely slated Rubicon speech at Durban City Hall. The content of this speech was generally condemned at home and abroad for exemplifying Afrikaner stubbornness. Progressive business people, such as Anglo-American chairman Gavin Reilly, were aghast at its content. But Afrikaner politicians saw beyond Boerts' infelicities of style and recognized that he had made a major shift in political strategy. He had quietly committed the National Party to the principle of one person, one vote in a unitary South Africa, overturning decades of intellectual orthodoxy. Only P.W. Boerter could have made this concession appear to be obduracy of the highest order. Boerter's mistake taught a crucial lesson to his party and to the Afrikaner constituency that it served. The party's next leader would be a politician of the new school, a master of presentation whose modernity and sophistication would allow Afrikaners to put behind them the moral opprobrium of apartheid. Despite a growing consensus about the need for change, there were, however, many divergences of strategy in the National Party leadership and a more general unwillingness to relinquish real power. Three factors cut the ground from under those Afrikaners who were still resisting change. First, the intensification of the state of emergency after 1988 had successfully, if brutally, dispelled ANC activists' expectations of revolutionary change. In F.W. de Klerk's way of explaining it, this reign of state terror had obliged ANC revolutionaries to adopt more realistic perceptions of the balance of power. Such perceptions that Clark believes were indispensable preconditions for the start of genuine negotiations. A second key change was the unravelling of the Soviet Empire under reformist President Mikhail Gorbachev. The new USSR seemed to demonstrate that liberalisation and political change could be initiated and managed by a bold leader. More importantly, Gorbachev made life harder for the opponents of negotiation by removing the red peril that Afrikaner diehards always identified as the root of their intransigence. For its part, the ANC was stripped of the funding and support mechanisms that had helped ameliorate the discontent of ordinary recruits in the camps. The doctrines to which South African Communist Party members had shown exceptional fealty were rapidly becoming discredited and there was no longer a Moscow line to which to appeal. ANC leaders had to face up to a sudden and dramatic end to the modest Soviet financial support and more substantial political credibility that had buoyed their morale across decades in exile. 
Most alarmingly for those habituated to exile life, the end of the Cold War ensured that the Western powers, especially the United States, would bring about a resolution to Southern Africa's last protracted stalemate. Suddenly, in Fonsale Slubbert's cynical view, the exiles realized they had to get home fast before a settlement was reached without them. The third key factor was the stroke to which P.W. Boerter fell victim on the 18th of January 1989 and the opportunity it provided for the adroit F.W. de Klerk to manoeuvre himself first into the party and then the state presidency. In his autobiography, de Klerk claims that he was just on the verge of confronting the Groot Grokodil. I felt that I could no longer serve under P.W. Boerter and that the time had come to make a stand. His surliness, aggression and poor human relations were doing serious harm to the National Party and to the country. I told my friend and colleague Darvi de Villiers that I was going to resign from the Cabinet. The reality is that he did nothing until Boerta was partly paralysed and politically isolated. In this new president, nevertheless, the process of negotiation had found a skillful Afrikaner tactician. De Klerk was born in Johannesburg on the 18th of March 1936, the son of Senator Jan de Klerk, who was later a minister in Verwut's cabinet. F.W. graduated in law from Potchefstroom University in 1958 and practiced in Vereniging. A gifted analytical thinker, later offered a professorship of administrative law at Potchefstroom, de Klerk rose rapidly through the Transvaal National Party, becoming member for Vereniging in the early 1970s. In 1978, Prime Minister Forster appointed him Minister of Posts and Telecommunications, the first of many ministerial portfolios. Under P.W. Boerter, these included Mineral and Energy Affairs, 1980-82, Internal Affairs, 82-85, and National Education and Planning, 84-89. As Minister of Education, he was a supporter of segregated universities, but committed to increasing resources for non-whites. A centrist in the party who led moves in 1982 against the extreme right, F.W. was not a natural reformer. But he was a relatively modern politician who understood political communication, international public opinion and the demands of a market economy. In February 1989, shortly after Boerter suffered his debilitating stroke, de Klerk was elected leader of the National Party in a carefully planned internal coup. In September 1989, after a protracted struggle to displace an ailing Boerter, he became state president. De Klerk steered a careful course between slowly dismantling a militarized regime and ensuring that a divided Afrikaner elite could be relied upon to accept negotiated change. Sensibly, he did not use the military as a bargaining chip in the negotiations, insisting that they were a part of the state and that the fiction of their impartiality must therefore be respected. There was division inside the military command, but in fact little likelihood of a coup. The military leadership mostly shared de Klerk's belief that the institutional separation of the armed forces from politics must be enforced. When Conservative leader Constant Fulyun 
later asked Defence Force Head General Mayron, what will you do when the soldiers mutiny? Mayron coldly reply, I will have them shot. You will have them shot? responded Fulun incredulously. Mayron, the order has already gone out. Because the means of state coercion remained so overwhelming and so robust, neither a military coup nor state destabilizing civil war in Natal ever posed a credible threat. One of de Klerk's first actions as state president was to summon to his office the government's head of communications, Dave Stewart, and tell him that henceforth he would report directly to the president. This was to be a presidency of managed perceptions, international diplomacy and scientific opinion surveys. Stewart was a former diplomat with a glittering career that had culminated in his rise at a young age to the coveted position of ambassador to the United Nations. He had perhaps the sharpest understanding in government of foreign perceptions of the apartheid state and he had managed South Africa's involvement in Namibian independence. Since 1985, he had been head of government communications, remodelling his department along the lines of the United Kingdom's Central Office of Information as a supplier of information to government rather than as a propaganda instrument. Stuart pioneered the use of opinion polling within government, commissioning representative national surveys to gauge the mood of black and white South Africans. Stuart was able to inform de Klerk, with more confidence than the ANC itself possessed, that the liberation movement had the support of between 60 and 65 percent of the voting age population. The National Party, meanwhile, could count on only 20 percent of the vote, and the IFP only 10 percent. From 1990, Stewart was de Klerk's main speechwriter, and in 1992, he became chief government spokesman and director general in the presidency, in effect, de Klerk's chief of staff. It was characteristic of de Klerk to elevate an English speaker and a diplomat to this prominent role, a man who, like de Klerk, represented the palatable face of reformist South Africa. In his first speech as party leader in early 1989, de Klerk called on a fresh spirit of reform. His first demonstrable shift on political prisoners came on the 10th of October when he announced that Walter Sisulu, Raymond Mtlaba, Ahmed Kathadra and several other Robben Islanders were to be summarily released. Then, on the 2nd of February 1990, de Klerk made his most famous address to Parliament in which he announced that opposition political parties would be unbanned forthwith and that Nelson Mandela would be shortly released from prison. De Klerk's 10th of October 1989 announcement threw the UDF and COSATU into frenzied action. Walter Sisulu and the other struggle veterans could not be released into a political vacuum. Yet the ANC was still illegal and most of its formal leadership remained in exile. Above all, there was a sense of uncertainty about the sustainability of the National Party's new strategy and a consequent desire to avoid unnecessary confrontation. The eventuality of prisoner release was one for which Mac Maharaj had already planned. In 1988, Maharaj had set up a 40-person clandestine release committee that represented almost every ANC and UDF constituency within the country.
From this 40-person group, a seven-person committee, one of whom was Cyril, was chosen as a decision-making executive. Maharaj had briefed all of them individually on their roles. When de Klerk made his announcement on the 10th of October, this prior planning provided some basis on which to act. The group was quickly gathered and tasked with making preparations for the impending releases. Cyril was a junior figure in the mass democratic movement, the MDM, in the words of Frank Shikani, not on the UDF radar. Yet he soon emerged as chair of the reception committee. Cyril's rise was prompted perversely by his lack of UDF seniority. In its desire to protect de Klerk's incremental strategy, the mass democratic movement was determined to avoid rocking the boat with a politically contentious appointment. Because the UDF was accused of being an ANC front by the government, it created fewer tensions to appoint the non-UDF leader Ramaphosa. It was also important that a black African should head the committee and be seen at the released prisoners' sides. There had been growing tension within the UDF because white-coloured and Indian activists held a disproportionate number of leadership positions. Some contemporaries also believe Cyril was very keen to secure this prize for himself. He had insinuated himself into the network around Mac Maharaj and had taken every opportunity to demonstrate his suitability for a high-profile public position of just this kind. As Frank Shikani observes, Others, like myself, were more deeply involved with release planning for Mandela and others. I was very deeply involved with the Mandelas, although I always stayed in the background and retreated out of photographs. But Cyril assumed a high profile. Once Ramaphosa became chair of the reception committee, he began to build upon the profile that it gave him. Saki Makozomo, who was head of media relations on the reception committee, recalls Cyril's adroit strategies for creating publicity without compromising negotiations. He unobtrusively turned the Susulu release rally into an ANC event, something that was at that stage not permitted by law, and so brought about a de facto legalization of the party before its actual unbanning in 1990. This made the unbanning itself almost inevitable and rendered the legalization politically painless for the government. Through his selection of the slogan, ANC lives, ANC leads, Ramaphosa meanwhile re-established the ANC in the consciousness of ordinary people who had not directly engaged with it since the 1950s. In January 1990, he took freed prisoners, including the new de facto leader of the internal ANC, Walter Sisulu, to Lusaka. There he was a participant in the historic reunion between Robben Islanders and exile leaders including Joe Slovo and acting ANC President Alfred Nzor. Ramaphosa had remained sceptical about Mandela's unmandated initiatives to engage the regime in dialogue until 1989 when he was able to meet Mandela for himself for the first time. Only during this face-to-face meeting did he become convinced of the feasibility of a negotiated settlement. They met at Victor Verster prison in late 1989, some weeks before the release of Sisulu, after Mandela had issued a call for MDM activists to visit him. 
Many UDF and COSATU leaders shared Ramaphosa's concern about Mandela's negotiations with the regime. Mac Maharaj, still active with Vula, remembers that many of them would make promises on the way to their first visit with the old man, waving their fingers and saying, I will tell him to stop talking to the fucking enemy. When Ramaphosa was scheduled to visit, Maharaj provoked him about his views. Go on then, he laughed. Go and make your case to him. At their next meeting, after Ramaphosa had seen Mandela, Maharaj teased him again. Did you tell him to shut up then? Ramaphosa was almost breathless with excitement about Mandela. He was fantastic. He was on top form. What could I do? This old man walks into the room, he comes straight up to me, and he asks me how my wife and son are doing. The old man, he knows every fucking thing. The two men shared a meal with wine, an event that Cyril recalled several years later, with still somewhat incoherent delight. It was wonderful. It was a really wonderful visit. Madiba is a very striking person, and when you meet him for the first time, particularly at the time we did, he was not physically known to anyone. You just see a leader without even questioning. He stands out. He just walks very quietly through a doorway. You're not expecting him, and there he is. You virtually fall backwards, and he knows every small detail about you. It's amazing. He knew quite a lot of what I had done. He'd been reading and had followed my career. That was very touching and very moving in very many ways. Ramaphosa's skepticism about Mandela's position on negotiations immediately turned to agreement. Like other converts, he could not really articulate this to those we were supposed to report back to in a convincing way. When you first see him, for the first, he just disarms you mesmerizes you completely, takes you in. So in the end, there were rumblings, particularly among those who hadn't met him, that he is negotiating, but we were convinced he was doing the right thing. Through his positions on committees dealing with released prisoners and Winnie Mandela, Cyril had an opportunity to spend considerable time with Mandela, and the two men developed a strong personal rapport. Ramaphosa eventually served in an advisory capacity as a kind of personal assistant, preparing materials and speeches and marshalling the information Mandela felt he must absorb before his release. Mandela was clearly a candidate in his own right for the leadership of the ANC, but he was also a potential foil to the ambitions of the exiles and in particular the supporters of Oliver Tambo's elevation to the presidency. In such circumstances, Mandela's purported transgression of the morality of the movement by unilaterally engaging the regime in talks could easily be used as a stick with which to beat him. The veteran was soon to recapture the combativeness and guile that had characterized his political dealings before prison. However, in the immediate aftermath of his release, it was the young Ramaphosa who had to be the older man's protector and guide. Few South Africans will ever forget the release of Nelson Mandela on Sunday, the 11th of February, 1990. A huge crowd met Nelson Mandela and Winnie outside the gates of the Victor Verster prison in Paul. Ramaphosa had been in overall charge of the logistics of the event and some of the strain showed in his face. In Chiavello, Cyril's mother watched on television 
as her son walked alongside the Mandelas on the proudest day of her life. Later in the day, Mandela spoke to a gigantic crowd outside the city hall in Cape Town. His speech was a turgid statement of ANC positions, including a reiterated commitment to nationalization. There was much speculation that Cyril had written the speech himself. Although he almost certainly played a major role in its formulation, numerous internal UDF activists, including Trevor Manuel, were insistent that references to nationalization be included. In photos of Mandela speaking at the city hall, Ramaphosa is hanging from the balcony and holding the microphone. Just outside the frame, however, less determined to be seen with Mandela, were leaders of the UDF, including Manuel and Cheryl Corollas, who were to become Cyril's closest allies. The central point of the speech was not to convey a policy platform. Rather, Mandela was determined to rebut critics of his initiation of talks. I am a loyal and disciplined member of the African National Congress. I am therefore in full agreement with all its objectives, strategies and tactics. He continued, No individual leader is able to take on this enormous task on his own. It is our task as leaders to place our views before our organization and to allow the democratic structures to decide. On the question of democratic practice, I feel duty-bound to make the point that a leader of the movement is a person who has been democratically elected at a national conference. This is a principle which must be upheld without any exceptions. Mandela then reiterated, We have not as yet begun discussing the basic demands of the struggle. I wish to stress that I myself have at no time entered into negotiations about the future of our country except to insist on a meeting between the ANC and the government. The exile ANC leadership had in fact already decided on a collective internal leadership to manage this period of change. In September 1989, a new inner core was chosen and it was planned that it should meet for the first time on the 14th of February 1990. Its members were Walter Sisulu, who was the chairman, Raymond Nklaba, Mac Maharaj and Gavin Mbeki, and a place was held open for Nelson Mandela. Its composition had been ratified in January 1990 by an ailing Oliver Tambo, who was then hospitalized in Stockholm. But this seeming resolution of the leadership issue quickly unraveled when Gavin Mbeki introduced new names, including his protege Chalema Motlante and the controversial Harry Gwala, to shift the balance of the internal leadership in his own favor. Mac Maharaj refused to work with Gwala and stormed out, writing to Joe Slovo that he was leaving for London. It took the intervention of Nelson Mandela to persuade Maharaj to return. The jostling for position within the leadership of the ANC was only just beginning. Oliver Tambo's illness and the unexpected charismatic force of Nelson Mandela meant that the most senior leadership question began to answer itself, although not without resentment among exiles who had conceived and created a Mandela legend that was now threatening to swallow them. The movement still faced an unprecedented period of upheaval. 
the exile leadership and the ANC's National Executive Committee were being repatriated to South Africa after decades abroad, with the first major exile cohort arriving in April 1990. At the same time, Robben Islanders were being released in large numbers. The role of the South African Communist Party, at the time of collapse of international communism, was uncertain and influential cadres such as Thabo Mbeki were tearing up their party cards. Perhaps most important of all, the exile's relationship with the domestic leadership of the UDF and Kosatu was fraught with uncertainty. Matters were further complicated in July 1990 when a number of Operation Vula operatives, including Mac Maharaj, were detained under the Internal Security Act. Maharaj had left the country secretly in May and re-entered legally in June. On one view, the arrests were simply evidence of the regime's determination to isolate the South African Communist Party from more moderate ANC leaders and Vula was characterized by the government as part of an insurrectory communist conspiracy. Intriguingly, one reporter for the BBC was reportedly briefed by an ANC official that Vula was a maverick operation that the movement did not sanction. It took four months for Maharaj to get released on bail and many months more for the ANC leadership to mobilize around indemnification of the operation's members. It is quite conceivable that Vula members were hung out to dry by ANC and MK leaders who had been excluded from the operation and were outraged to discover its existence. Equally plausible is the possibility that Vula posed a real threat to the ambitions of the exile leadership that had developed around Tambo in Lusaka. James Sanders observes that Vula's deeply problematic contribution to the struggle was that it had established, in addition to the Department of Internal Security and MK's military intelligence, a third ANC intelligence network. Even after it was formally disbanded, there were suspicions that the Vula network lived on in sets of informal relationships between exiled South African Communist Party cadres such as Mac Maharaj and Joe Slovo and leftist UDF and Kusatu leaders such as Trevor Manuel, Cheryl Carolus, Pravin Gordon, Vali Musa and Cyril Ramaphosa. The ANC was due to hold a conference in the following year, 1991, to elect new office holders and build an integrated party after the enforced divisions of the struggle. Ramaphosa had the opportunity to secure senior office, and now he possessed some powerful allies.